Would you please stand? This morning, Anna's going to come and read God's Word for us. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. This is the word of the Lord from John 1, 35-42. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, it is great to be back in the pulpit with you this morning and to continue what I felt the Lord has laid on my heart for the beginning of this year to look at the life and the ministry of John the Baptist and especially how he prepared the way for the Messiah, the Lord, the Son of God, just as we've been called to do as modern-day disciples to prepare the way for others, to prepare the way for the Lord. And we mentioned a few weeks ago what one ancient Christian said about John, and I love this, that John the Baptist did not merely announce the Lord in words, but he pointed people to Jesus. And I want us to continue to think what it looks like for us in our lives to point others to Jesus, not just with the words of our mouths, not just with the things that we post and share online, but with our very lives, that our, our attitudes, our actions, would point others to Jesus and that they would see that the the trajectory and the direction of our lives is in the direction of our Lord and and who he's called us to be and I think right now that is so incredibly important for the church that we make it our priority above anything else to point people to Jesus because we're living in a time in our culture where there's so much ridiculousness there's such a a current lack of civil discourse among people And a lot of that is because there are just so many voices that are constantly shouting and saying, listen to me, do what I say, this is the way, this is the message, this is the thing. But I'm convinced now more than ever that if those voices aren't pointing us to Jesus, we should not follow them. And I ask the question constantly when I come across other people and I I see things and I hear things and I feel that draw, is this pointing to Jesus who is pointing people to Jesus and when I find that that's happening I feel a a confirmation from the Holy Spirit follow them if they're pointing people to Jesus follow them but I want to turn that question who is pointing people to Jesus into a commission that I believe that is our calling if if we want to be the the kind of trustworthy godly people that others should follow then we too must point people to Jesus. And if we 
want to steward well the people that God has given to us, if we want to do right by those who we are responsible for, those who God has said you are to lead them, then then we too must point them to Jesus. And John has continually been our example of that as the forerunner, as the messenger who went before Jesus, announcing Christ and his kingdom. And if you'll remember from when we very first saw John's public ministry began, began, it, it didn't begin with John getting on a soapbox and just going off about whatever common topics of the day were important to him. But when John began his public ministry, it began because the word of the Lord came to him. And when John was speaking by the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the word that the Lord gave to him, it always pointed to Jesus. So much so that as John continued further on in his ministry, he said Christ must increase, and as that happens, I, self, will begin to decrease. John was one who did not merely announce the Lord in words, but he pointed him out for people to see. Today, as, as a shepherd here in our church, my heart's desire is that I point you to Jesus today. And then I do so in such a way that we also consider what it means to be his disciples. As those who don't just talk about Jesus with the words of our mouths, but we follow him closely with all of our lives. And that's what's really happening here in John chapter 1. In John's gospel, so not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle who wrote this gospel, he's telling us his version of the, the moment when Jesus called his first disciples. And interestingly, John helps us understand that these first two disciples to follow Jesus had already been disciples who were following John the Baptist. And what John the Baptist did as the messenger, as the forerunner, and we see it so clearly on display here, is he constantly told people, look to Jesus. John says, John the, the apostle who wrote the gospel of John says, on that day, Andrew and I, we were walking with John the Baptist, and Jesus just so happened to pass by. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus passing by, we heard him say, look, the Lamb of God. John pointing people to Jesus amazingly enough on Jesus first introduction to two men who would become his disciples he's not the one speaking it's not Jesus speaking it's the messenger it's the witness and John says behold look here comes the lamb of God now when you think about that idea of the lamb of God what does John mean by this well he's been saying this all along just a little bit earlier in John chapter 1, a great example. John sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is what I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. This is like that, that public proclamation of, of the way the Gospel of John begins. In the beginning was the Word. And, and in the beginning the Word was with God and the word was God he is going to surpass me because he was before me he exists from all eternity 
Behold the Lamb of God. This is what John the Baptist has been saying over and over again. But when we hear the, the, the title, the phrase, the Lamb of God, we think, I think, more often than not about the victorious Lamb. We, we can look at our, our stained glass imagery. We have the images of, of lambs and, and sheep and, and this, these powerful images of who Jesus was as the Lamb of God. And, and we think more in terms of later in the New Testament and the book of Revelation. The victorious Lamb. Yes, he is the Lamb of sacrifice, but he's also the victorious Lamb who is the King. He's the victorious Lamb who has conquered sin and conquered death. And we sing about it. We, we proclaim it. Jesus Christ is the victorious lamb. Amen? Hello? <laughs> he is the victorious lamb. And it fills us with, with confidence to speak of him in that way. But when John is saying, behold the lamb of God, and notice so much of John's message that comes from the word of Lord, it's not so much yet about the victorious lamb. It's not the message that people have been waiting for. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to overthrow all of your enemies. He's going to kick Caesar off of his throne. He's going to remove all the scoundrels from around you and, and he's going to give you back everything you want tenfold, thirtyfold. He's going to bless you unbelievably. No, John is saying repent, get ready because the kingdom of God is coming and the Lamb of God is here. And when the Hebrew mind hears the Lamb of God, they, they're not thinking like, like we do as the victorious lamb that, that we talk about as Christians, but they're thinking of, of the sacrifice. They're, they're thinking of a, a lamb who, who always is, is used, is given, so that their sins might be forgiven, and so that they somehow, through the system that God has set up, might be made right with him. And so when John is talking about the lamb of God, yes, we know now looking backwards that, that he's the victorious lamb, but the language his hearers would hear, the language that the first disciples would hear, would be that like we read from Isaiah 53 just a moment ago. But he, the lamb who was slain, was pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. We're like sheep, we've gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him, the lamb who was slain, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And here's that language. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. When John says continually, behold the Lamb, see, look, the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, he is proclaiming the gospel, the good news of who Christ is and what Christ has done before John could have even perfectly understood what all of this meant. But we know now that the promises of Isaiah were fulfilled in Jesus, that the Lamb indeed was slain, that he did take on the iniquity of us all. That we can have peace now because our punishment was laid on him. And John is proclaiming this good news and he's using the only language he knows how to use, the only words that will work. Behold the Lamb of God. And this, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the good news that we believe. 
we believe that because Christ is the lamb who was slain and he's the victorious lamb that we can be made right with God and that we can have the peace that he's brought us this is the good news we believe and it is the good news that we also are to proclaim to tell others around us as we point them to Jesus look to him he can be trusted and upon his word you can build the foundation of your life and I want you to hear me on this if you're sitting here in the room today or watching online and you would say I've never believed in the lamb who was slain that that the good news of the gospel has never been good news in my life today before you leave at the very end of this message you're you're going to have an opportunity to come to Christ today you can say to him I am a sinner I do believe that that you received the punishment for my sins and today you can commit your whole life to the lamb who was slain in an act of repentance to say to God I'm turning away from the sinful path I've been on and I am I am going to follow you from this day forward just as we see happening here with the disciples before you leave today if you've never made that commitment that's never been all of your life all for Jesus today you're going to have the opportunity to do that and John and Andrew these two disciples who had been following John the Baptist they get the opportunity to do this here and John bears witness to it they move from from John saying look to Jesus verse 37 says when the two disciples heard him say this look the Lamb of God then they started following Jesus it's an amazing thing to consider if you if you dig just a little bit deeper and I'll ask you to do that with me for a moment into this ancient practice of discipleship what we use the word disciples in 2022 and we always think in a Christian sense and if you grew up in in an evangelical or a Baptist church when you hear disciples or discipleship you might think of a program you might think of, of walking through, through steps and classes where, where you were taught how to be more faithful in your Christian life and more active in your service to the church, and that was called discipleship for you. But back in the first century, when John the Baptist was on the scene, and as Jesus began his ministry, the, the idea of calling disciples was a very common thing because it was very common in the Jewish world. In fact, the, the Jews had their own word for this, different than the word we find in the New Testament. It was the word Talmudim, and it meant disciples. And the way that a person became a, a Talmudim, a, a disciple who followed a, a rabbi, a public teacher of the Hebrew Scriptures of God's Word, the way a person became one of the Talmudim was through a very rigorous process. In fact, you were very unlikely to even have the opportunity to become the disciple of a rabbi in the first century unless you were born to privilege because the whole process had to start with, with the highest levels of Jewish Hebrew education if you were raised in a family like that in the first century you likely had when you were a young child a teacher who lived in your home and constantly was imparting to you the truths of scripture and and teaching you how to read and to understand and if you showed some real promise as a child You'd move on into to the, the later, the elementary years of childhood, and you'd start memorizing large sections of the Bible. What we call our Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. You, you would start memorizing the first five books, the Torah. You would start memorizing passages from the prophets and the Psalms. And if you really started to, sh to show some promise there, then, then as a teenager, 
you'd get put into the highest level of the education system where you were not only learning to memorize scripture but you were now studying the teachings about scriptures from other rabbis and ancient documents like the Mishnah and the Targums you were learning to interpret and perhaps begin to teach the Bible yourself and if as a as as one of those those high level students you reached the, the top and you started to sense a, a calling on your life that, that God wanted you to set aside your life and, and follow a rabbi so that you might become a rabbi, a teacher yourself, then you would literally leave everything else behind and you would say, either for the rest of my life or until I'm ready to be a rabbi myself, I'm leaving my family, I'm leaving my home, and I'm following this man until God says it's time to take the next step. So this was a an ancient practice and and most of the time the 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 students the talmudim the disciples of the rabbis were the elite but then comes john the baptist he's gathering crowds of thousands of people around him and he starts to gain some followers some inner circle but most of them don't come from the elite most of them didn't have the the education the pedigree if you will they were some of the same guys jesus called they were fishermen they were unschooled, uneducated, from the fringes of society, and yet they began following John as his Talmudim, as his disciples. Now here's what I think is amazing about this. Where I really feel like we see John's character and his integrity, and we see the evidence that it was the word of, of God that John received, and that his role as the forerunner, as the witness to the light, who is Jesus Christ, was was that was his calling that he lived out in full obedience this moment comes again you as a talmud as the talmudim you follow your teacher for life and and the rabbis were very competitive with each other so part of your goal with your talmudim was to make sure that you could destroy the arguments of the other rabbis and their talmudim but when john sees jesus coming to his own talmudim his own disciples his own students he says look at him he points to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. And turning around, Jesus addresses Andrew and, and, and John because they've now started to follow Jesus. And here's what I think is amazing about John. He doesn't protest. This could have been the moment where John wrestled a little bit with his own fame, with his own success, John could have said to Jesus, you know, can I, can I have a little more time with these guys? Because it's pretty great having them around. They do all the menial tasks for me. You know, they, they think I'm so great that every single morning I wake up and all they do is tell me that I'm their rabbi and they build me up and they encourage me. They, they cook my meals for me. They wash my feet. It's really nice to have these guys around. But when Andrew and John turn away from their rabbi, to follow the other rabbi jesus john doesn't protest he knows this is part of the plan he knows that his life and his calling is much bigger than his self-serving interest could ever be he's a part of a much bigger story than than john the baptist in his life and when they decide to follow jesus he lets them go and i think this is so instructive for us as Christians, but also as the church, to learn how to hold things more loosely and to learn at times that, 
that, that maybe the same calling will come our way, that things have to change. We have, have to let go of some things that we've really enjoyed and, and have really made us comfortable. And for the good of Christ and his kingdom, we have to be willing to put ourselves aside and say his will is far more important. You know, that's really easy for me to say from me to you, but not take ownership of that in my own life. But I too struggle with, with being the center of my own universe sometimes. I too struggle when I see others who undertake the same tasks I do and they seem to be more successful than me. I too struggle when things change and, and things that I am comfortable with start to move around and they're different. But John's example here, it, it makes me want to, to look further inward to do the hard work of introspection and to say, Lord, what, whatever is in my heart that's going to be an obstacle to your will, to your purposes, to your kingdom that's at work around me, Lord, search my heart, know my ways, and, and reveal to me if there is anything offensive in me. And if so, Lord, help me to get rid of it, to repent from it, to turn away from it, and to walk again in the everlasting path. And boy, John is such an incredible example of this. Even in this moment when his first disciples begin to follow Jesus, he doesn't protest. Speaking of the church, there's a great example of this in, in our own denomination, in our own convention of churches. Many of you may have heard of Summit Church that's in North Carolina. Their pastor's J.D. Greer. If you haven't heard of Summit Church, many of you probably heard of J.D. Greer. They celebrated an incredible milestone this year that when I read it, I had to read it twice because I couldn't believe it. So in 2002, 20 years ago, back then they were a large church, larger than us, and they felt like the Lord was calling them to start being generous, not only with their money, but with their people. And they decided they were going to start giving their people away, which didn't mean the pastor was just going to offend them so that they'd want to leave and join another church. But they were really going to start praying and preparing people to be sent out on mission or to, to, to plant churches. And so they began this process of saying, we want to plant 50 churches that will also plant, each one of them will plant a church. We want to send out disciples who will make disciples and, and 20 years later, this is what I read this week on, on a 20, the 20-year 20 anniversary of this. Summit Church has more missionaries and church planters serving overseas than they had members in 2002 when they began this process. Can you imagine if, if as we were following the Lord's leadership and we were taking seriously our call to not just be disciples but to make disciples, if the Lord would lead us a church our size to really take that seriously to be to be consistent and faithful in our sending and in the giving of our people for the good of the kingdom what it would look like if 20 years from now we had more people on the mission field and planting churches than we have in our membership right now what an incredible kingdom impact that's happening in summit church and and to me it's such a great example of holding things loosely so that in a moment's notice if Jesus turns around to us and he sees us following him and he says, what do you seek? What do you want? We'll have the right answer. And I love his question here because, well, actually, I don't love it in the NIV. The NIV makes Jesus sound kind of rude. I mean, I kind of read it like he turns around 
Andrew and John are following him, and he's like, what do you want? But, but the literal Greek here says, what's on your mind? And, and really what it means, some of your translations will say, what are you seeking? Why are you following me? And they said to him, Rabbi, which I love just their, that, that expression. When you say to someone, Rabbi, when you say, Lord, when you say, teacher, you're automatically taking a posture of readiness to listen and learn. When, when you address God in that way, you're saying to him, I am ready right now to listen, to learn, and, and I want you to give me something that will help me grow. Not just what we often do, which is reach out to God to get us out of the next mess that we're in, or to give us things that we want, but when was the last time you, you approached the Lord with that posture of readiness to listen and learn and grow? What do you want? What are you seeking? What's on your mind? They say, Rabbi, where are you staying? It's such an interesting thing that they ask there that they don't say, where do you live? Where are you going? Where is your home? In, in my previous church, a, a large part of what I did in my role as the associate pastor was, was leading out in our ministry to people who were experiencing homelessness. And I learned very on in that kind of ministry, and many of you, you do this. You work with folks experiencing homelessness in, in our, our ministry center or at Jinx Care Point or other places. I learned very quickly that the question, where do you stay, is a much better question than where do you live. Because sometimes you'd say, where do you live, and it'd be awkward. Well, here and there. What, where's your home? What's your address? Don't really have one. The day center for the homeless is where I get my mail. But where do you stay? More often than not, that question would evoke the person telling you where they are right now. So that if you needed to go and find them, you'd know where to go. If the Lord was saying, I want you to go seek that person out, you'd know where to go. Where are you staying? It's very present tense. And think about that in terms of Jesus. This, this rabbi that now John and Andrew are going to start following. Where do you stay is probably a better question than where is your home? Because what does Jesus say early on in his ministry? The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was probably sleeping outside on the move a little bit transient at this point where do you stay and then don't you love jesus response come and see how often do we hear that same thing from christ as modern day disciples in fact g campbell morgan pointed this out so beautifully he said the very first question that jesus asked his first disciples is the one he still asks all who come to him what do you seek and if their response to what do you seek is your kingdom and your righteousness, then he says, come and see. And when he says, come and see, if we're talking about seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, and many of you have experienced this, the things you see are beyond comprehension. They're incredible. They're eternal. They're the things that will last forever. They're the things that evoke wonder from us, which then leads us to worship because they are the things of his kingdom. And God says to us, what do you seek? And when we can truly say with all of our heart, we seek Christ in his kingdom, he says then, come and see and get ready because amazing things await. And that's what they did. They went and saw where he was staying they spent that day with him and here's the reason i keep saying that it was john who was there you might th think well why does he keep saying it's andrew and john andrew's the only one who's mentioned who we'll, we'll see next 
Well, because how else would we know that it was four in the afternoon? And if you read John's gospel, he loves to do this. Not John the Baptist, John the Apostle who wrote the gospel of John. He loves to tell first-person stories but not mention himself by name. He loves to say things like, the disciple Jesus loved was there. He's talking about himself. Or he likes to say things like, the other disciple ran faster than Peter and got to the tomb first, right? He likes that, that, that anonymous identification. And I think here, John is the other disciple. It's Andrew and John, and he remembers because he was there. It's four o'clock in the afternoon. But he also remembers something else. Another part of what it means to be a disciple and to point people to Jesus with our lives is the, the literal act of bringing others to Jesus, which is what we see ex modeled by John the Baptist, yes, but also by Andrew here in this story. But forgive me for just a moment for taking an aside, and also forgive me that in my mind, my glory days are still the 80s and 90s of the previous century, okay? So if I think about movies or music and, and things I think are great, I can't help it. I go back to the 80s and 90s. And for whatever reason, when I was preparing this part of the message, I came back to a great movie from the 90s, and I couldn't help but think about Forrest Gump. This is such a great scene, a great example of what it looks like to be caught up in something. As Forrest Gump was running for three years, two months, 14 days, and 16 hours... And all of a sudden, after he's gathered this group who are running behind him and following him, he stops. He turns to this crowd. And you remember, if you've seen the movie, they're all like, oh, he's finally going to say something. He's going to speak. And Forrest Gump says, I'm pretty tired now. I think I'll go home. He turns and walks through the crowd, and, and the crowd says, now what are we supposed to do? And they all just give up. And they all go home. And he goes home by himself and and that moment that everybody was caught up in was, was over. This is not the picture of true discipleship. There, there are many people who will get caught up in something. For a day, for a week, for a season of their lives, they'll get caught up in, in the furor of it, and they, they want to experience more, and, and they, they have that adrenaline rush, and they feel the excitement of being part of something. But when it gets hard when things change directions, when things are no longer as comfortable or as exciting as they once were, they turn around and they go home. And that happened to John. There were some who followed John the Baptist and they left. It certainly happened to Jesus. There were many who were following him and they, once it got difficult, they turned and left. But it's not so with true disciples. True disciples point to Jesus they look to Jesus, they follow Jesus with all of their lives, and they bring others alongside them to follow him to the end. And John says about Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, who was one of the two who heard what John the Baptist had said and had followed Jesus. He uses a Greek word, proton. He is making sure this is very clear. The very first thing that Andrew did was he went and found his brother Simon, and he told him, we found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And if you read on further into John's gospel, this is, this is Andrew, Andrew's M.O. This is what he's known to do. I think that's one of the reasons why John highlights it so much. Andrew brings Simon Peter to Jesus, the very first thing after he starts following Jesus. Later on in, in John chapter 6, they're, 
they're with a huge crowd of people and there's not enough food to go around and all the other disciples are are acting like they have no idea what to do next but andrew and goes and, and finds a little boy who has some loaves of bread and some fish and he does what he brings the little boy to jesus jesus will know what to do you bring what you have and jesus will take care of the rest and then in john chapter 12 a couple of greek folks come and they want to meet jesus and the rest of the disciples are kind of acting like yeah yeah this isn't your thing you're not jews we, we don't have time for this but what does andrew do he takes the the greeks and he brings them to jesus this is andrew's mo if your name is andrew or you name your child andrew teach them to own this andrew brought people to jesus that's what a disciple does and i love the way my favorite preacher of old john chrysostom said it he said andrew after having tarried with jesus and learned what he did kept not the treasure to himself but hastened and ran quickly to his brother to impart to him the good news andrew did what any good disciple does he imitated his teacher he followed him closely and he brought others to him so that they might experience the good news as well this is a great example for us just like we said of john the baptist andrew was one who did not just talk about jesus but he pointed others to him and, and often physically brought people to jesus and of course this becomes a huge moment in the history of the church because this is the moment when andrew was faithful to bring his brother simon to jesus that jesus gives him a new name as god is is, is very commonly a part of his practice throughout scripture to give somebody a new name at a turning point in their life and jesus looked right at simon and he said you are simon john's son but you will be called cephas from now on which means rock you are peter the rock jesus gives simon a new name which will symbolize the rock solid foundation upon which christ's church will be built and will continue the work also that the word of the lord had been doing through john the baptist what an amazing moment when jesus called his first disciples and they too became witnesses messengers to point others to jesus i want to close by reading just from a little a passage a little bit earlier in john 1 one that that we're not going to read as a major part of this this series but it's it's a great way to close today as we think about the role of a disciple john chapter 1 tells a lot about jesus has a lot of deep theology in it sort of bounces back and forth between john explaining who jesus is but also telling us a little bit about john the baptist and his ministry and here's what john 1 starting in verse 6 says there was a man sent from god whose name was john he came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe he himself was not the light he came only as a witness to the light the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world behold the lamb of god right he was in the world and though the world was made through him the world did not recognize him he came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him but yet to all who did receive him to those who believed in his name he gave them the right to become children of god children not 
born of natural descent, nor of a human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God, children of God. John the Baptist, Andrew, John the Apostle, Simon Peter, the others, the women who followed Jesus, this became their role as his disciples, that they weren't the light, that they, it wasn't about them, but their calling as disciples was to bear witness to the true light that gives light to everyone, who gives each and every one of us who believe in his name the, the right to be called his children, children of God. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, a, a Greek, a slave or a free, male or female, doesn't matter. Those who belong to Christ are called children of God, and, and this is what it looks like to testify to the true light that's coming into the world. And so I ask you again this morning, who is pointing people to Jesus? Then follow them. And turn that question into a commission. If we want to be the kind of godly, trustworthy people that are, are worth following, let us point others to Jesus. Let our lives, as much as our, our words say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Would you pray with me? I mentioned earlier in the message that now as we come to the end of the service, you have an opportunity today to come to Christ. And for you today, it may be that you've never done that for the first time or you've never truly done it with all your heart like we sang earlier. If you feel that, that call from the Lord today, my prayer has been that as we point to Jesus today that you would see him. If he's calling you to follow him today, would you be willing to take that step and do so publicly today? The opportunity before you this morning, if you've never done this or if you've never done this with all your heart, is to step out and to come to Jesus and to say to him today, behold the Lamb of God who takes away my sin to confess your sin to him, to say to him, Lord, I'm committing to follow you now for the rest of my life as you lead me to turn away from my sin and repentance and to follow you in obedience. Today, if you feel that call from Christ, do not resist it, do not push it away, and would you be willing to courageously take that step and say, yes, today, with all my life, with all my heart, Jesus, I'm yours. I also know that there are many in the room that you are disciples. You, you know Christ's salvation. You're walking in that salvation. But are you pointing others to Jesus? Are you being faithful today and active in bringing others to the Messiah? Would you hear that commission again today? Whoever you are, wherever you are, whoever you lead... Whatever opportunities God has given you, would you point them to Jesus? And Lord, we give you this time today, and I pray that you would speak to every single heart. Lead us to be faithful as we follow you more closely today. And as we've lifted up your name, would you draw people to yourself? In Jesus' name, amen.